you have a Bible, let me invite you to open up to the book of Revelation. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study, looking at these seven churches, the churches of Revelation, and we're in chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to be looking at the faithful church, the faithful church. We're going to be talking about the church of Philadelphia, and we're in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, John writes this, and he's again speaking for Jesus. He says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try to, to, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we continue to worship now through the reading of the word and through the opportunity to hear it proclaimed to us faithfully. We pray, God, that you would open our hearts this morning to understand what it means to be a faithful church. And I pray that as we learn from the context here of the church of Philadelphia, that we would see how Christ interacted with them in such a way that would encourage them and challenge them to continue to endure, and that we would learn many lessons this morning that we could apply to our own lives. We love you. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, Charles Simeon was born on September the 24th, 1759. His father was a wealthy attorney, but not a believer. He sent his son Charles to Cambridge University, no doubt, to follow in his footsteps. But then something radical happened. Charles, we're talking again about Charles Simeon, he was gloriously saved at the age of 19 while sitting in his dormitory room just before Easter. Here is the account of what happened by his own words, quote, In Passion Week, I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper. I met with an expression to this effect that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of the offering. The thought came to mind, what? May I transfer all of my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that if I lay my sins on his head, then I could be forgiven? Then God willing, he said, I will bear them on my own soul not one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus Christ. 
close quote. And at that point, Charles Simeon's life was changed forever. He felt such a relief and such a joy, such an indebtedness to Christ that he decided to become a preacher. And preach he did. He was the guest preacher for a summer in a friend's church, and the building was packed with attentive listeners. This jealous young man proclaimed the gospel with fervency, and the clarion call of repentance and faith was attracting attention. However, Simeon's future as a pastor was anything but easy. Simeon was later appointed to be the minister of the Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge in 1783 at the young age of 24. Surprisingly, there was an immediate opposition from the congregation who did not appreciate this young man's evangelical zeal or his doctrine. The building held about 900 people, but most of the members stayed home in protest. Simeon preached to the visitors who came to hear him. Then the the, the pew holders, they used to own their own pews, actually, in churches in those days. They locked the doors entering into their pews to prevent visitors from using them. And so Simeon placed benches in the aisles, and the church officers were furious, and they threw the benches into the courtyard. So Simeon then started a Sunday evening service to reach needy sinners. But the church officers locked the church doors, and this persecution in his own church lasted for some 10 years. It is difficult to believe that Charles Simeon actually remained at that same church for 54 years. The first 30 years, we just heard about 10 of them, the first 30 years, it is said, were filled with various oppositions. But finally, by the grace of God, Simeon's church began to prosper. The zealous pastor used to get up at 4 a.m. each morning so that he might devote hours to prayer and to Bible study. And all of his hard work and his faithful preaching and patient spirit changed that church forever. Towards the end of his life, when Simeon was 71 years old, he was asked by his friend, Joseph Gurney, how he had surmounted the persecution and outlasted the great prejudice against him. Simeon responded with these words, quote, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, my head, if it is clear and my shoulders are through safely enough, I can bear the prickling of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all of his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Close quote. So in other words, he's saying, if I can get my head through and my shoulders through, I don't mind the prickling of my legs. What a beautiful perspective of how to persevere in the midst of suffering. And Charles Simeon's life and his ministry was not too unlike the church that we're looking at this morning, the Church of Philadelphia. This church, Philadelphia, may have had little power, but they had a great God. And those who persecuted this church would eventually bow the knee and acknowledge that Jesus Christ loves his own. And because this church kept God's word, Jesus promised to keep them through the hour of testing. A faithful church finds a way to make it to the end. 
A faithful church does not falter in the midst of persecution, but perseveres to the finish line. My friend, are you persevering today? Sir, are you faithfully leading your family in the faith? Ma'am, are you faithfully persevering in your job as a wife, a mother, a helpmate to your husband? Teenagers, are you faithfully following Christ? A faithful church must be filled with faithful members, each of their own right being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you have a faithful church, no matter the size, that church can shake the world for Jesus Christ. My friends, I pray that we at Placerita Bible Church would be a faithful church. And so this morning, as we look at this heading, uh, these five headings together that we've been exploring throughout these seven churches, let's look at now the Church of Philadelphia. The setting or the speaker is the first heading here. We're talking about the city. Verse 7 says again, and to the angel, that would be the messenger of the church in Philadelphia. So let's talk for a couple of minutes about the city of Philadelphia. And I'm not talking about you Eagles fans, right? We're talking about Philadelphia over in Asia Minor. Philadelphia was the youngest of those seven cities, and you probably have heard heard of it as being the city of brotherly love. It was founded in 189 BC, either by King Emmanuel or a Pergamum or his brother Adelus II, who succeeded him as king. In either case, the city derived its name from Adelus II's nickname, which was Philadelphus, which means brother lover. So it was the loyalty that was shared between these two brothers is what gave Philadelphia its name. Philadelphia was not only a younger city, but it was a smaller one, especially compared with Ephesus and Smyrna. It was smaller in prosperity, smaller in productivity, smaller in prestige. But despite its smallness, the city was positioned for greatness. It had a great location along major travel routes, and because of this, Philadelphia became a major hub of communication, disseminating information throughout that part of the world. Strategically located, small in stature, but significant in influence, that was Philadelphia. And like so many of the cities of Asia Minor, the city was easily defendable, being situated on an 800-foot high hill overlooking some important trade routes, including the Imperial Post Road. It was given the title, the Gateway to the East. And Philadelphia was not founded as a military outpost as Thyatira had been. Rather, this city was intended to be the center of Greek culture and language. This city was to be the outpost for spreading Hellenism to the regions of the world of Lydia and Phrygia in which it was located. And so Philadelphia was located as well on the edge of a volcanic region whose soil was ideally suited for growing vineyards. And being near such a seismically active region had its drawbacks for in A.D. 17, when Jesus was just a teenager, a powerful earthquake rocked Philadelphia along with Sardis and 10 other nearby cities. In those days and weeks and even years following that earthquake, the aftershocks were frequently enough and serious enough that many residents hesitated to move back into the city. And so out of fear, many built temporary structures outside the city and they lived there out of the threatening danger. Philadelphia was not an overly religious city, 
But out of its gratitude for Caesar, Tiberius, and his financial aid in rebuilding their city after the earthquake, the Philadelphians did erect a monument in his honor. Certainly, there was the threat of persecution from the Roman mandate throughout that region for the imperial emperor worship. That's Philadelphia there in Asia Minor. Now that we know a little bit about the city, let's take a quick look at the church. He's writing again to the angel of the church, the ecclesia, the assembly of believers there in that city. This church is, is, is a church that's little known other than this passage that we're looking at right here. That's not mentioned in any other passages of scripture outside of Revelation chapter 3. Most likely it was founded as all the seven churches of Asia Minor in Paul's ministry at Ephesus as we We've read many times from Acts chapter 19, verse 10, how that ministry in Ephesus continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. A few years after John wrote the letter to the church, an early church father by the name of Ignatius passed through Philadelphia on his way to be martyred in Rome. Before Ignatius died, he wrote a letter to the church of Philadelphia, and it was a letter of encouragement and instruction. History records that some of the Christians of Philadelphia were even martyred with Polycarp at Smyrna. And so while not detailed in this letter, the church of Philadelphia no doubt underwent intense persecution. It was in the midst of this persecution that Jesus reminded them of his sovereign control. And so our next blank there says the characteristics of Christ emphasized. And if you'll look again at verse 7, we're starting to see now Jesus unpack more characteristics about his own nature. And this, these particular characteristics are not drawn from Revelation chapter 1 as the other self-descriptions are. This is a unique description of Christ that has distinct Old Testament features. And so the first one is this, Jesus is pure, that's your first blank, pure in holy character. Notice how he says that these words are of the Holy One. So he's pure in holy character. Jesus reveals himself to the church of Philadelphia as he who is holy. The concept of holiness comes from the Hebrew root meaning to cut. To, to be holy is to be a cut above. To to be holy is to be separate. To be holy is to be set apart. And this has two aspects. One is Jesus is set apart from creation, for he was never created, but always has been and always will be. So he's separate from creation. And two, he's separate from all sin. Though Jesus came in the flesh into this world and lived in this world and was tempted in every way, Hebrews 2.18, just as we are, yet he was without sin. So he's separate from us because he's not created like we're created, and he's separate from us because he's never sinned, though he lived in a fallen world. And so the Old Testament repeatedly refers to God as the Holy One. Isaiah 6, 3 solemnly declares, you might remember that vision Isaiah had when he saw the Lord seated on his throne, seated on his throne high and lofty, and the angels or the cherubim were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. And so that title, 
Holy One, used in the New Testament, is a messianic title for the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever Jesus is referred to as the Holy One, then then the writer is reminding us this is the divine Christ. This is the Messiah. This is is the second person of the Trinity on par with God himself. And so the angel announced to Mary even when, when she was going to give birth, the angel Gabriel said that she would give birth to the, quote, the holy child. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Peter affirmed, quote, we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of God, Acts 13, 14. And so this claim of Jesus to be holy is, again, it's a direct quote of his divinity, his deity, his divinity. He is God. And everything about Jesus, by the way, everything about him is holy. The head of the church is holy. He is holy in his character. He is holy in his words. He is holy in his actions. Jesus is holy in all of his purposes. He is holy in his conduct. He is holy in his interactions with each and every person. Jesus never cheated. He never lied. He never lusted. He never was prideful, sinfully angry, or jealous. Jesus was perfect in every way. There is no one holy like the Lord. And so he's reminding us here, that's who's addressing the church of Philadelphia, the Holy One. And not only is he perfectly holy, but our next blank this morning says that he's perfect in unblemished truth. Perfect in unblemished truth. It goes on to write in verse 7, the Holy One, the True One. Jesus is the true one. And the word for true here is the word aletheneos, which is uh, in, he, in the Greek, uh, aletheia, with the word that we get from that. It means to be authentic or to be genuine. He, he is, Jesus is the real thing. He, he's not a cheap imitation. He's not a figment of the imagination. In, in the midst of falsehood and perversion and error that has filled this world, we can know this morning that Jesus is true. He is no mimic Messiah, no counterfeit Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, according to John 14, 6. And so we understand here that this Jesus is holy, this Jesus is true, and he's also, we see Jesus number three, he's powerful in sovereign authority. Look at the end of verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And so here, he claims to be uh, and, and to have and possess the key of David. This means that Jesus is the keeper of the keys who alone can open and shut the door leading to God's blessings. As is clear from Revelation 5.5 and Revelation 22.16, David symbolizes the messianic office, and Jesus now fills this office with all dominion. And a key in Scripture represents authority. Whoever holds the key has control. And the term, the key of David, also appears in Isaiah 22, 22, where it refers to Eliakim, King Hezekiah's key holder to the treasures of Israel. He alone possessed the key needed to get into the royal vault. So Jesus is the Davidic king who has been handed the keys of heaven's treasures by God the Father. And these keys open doors 
leading to eternal life in heaven. And Jesus alone is the sole guardian of the riches of God. And only through the cross can one enter into the throne room of heaven. You see, Jesus has passed through the heavens and he is seated at the right hand of God. And only Jesus can get there and only Jesus can bring you there. Only Jesus can open this door and only Jesus can shut this door. He has absolute authority. And Revelation 1.18 reveals that Jesus has the keys to death and to hell. And so here Jesus is depicted as having the keys to salvation and the keys to blessing. And so we got to ask the question, why does Jesus reveal himself in this way to this church? He's one who is holy, he's one who's true, and he's one who has all authority. What does that have to do with the church of Philadelphia? Well, Jesus is reminding them that it is he alone who rules over this church. He alone opens and shuts doors of salvation circumstances, and opportunity. Jesus alone unlocks access into the vast riches of God's abounding grace. And this church of Philadelphia, we are told, had but little power. They had only a little strength and a few resources. Remember, it's a smaller town, probably a smaller church, and we've got to be reminded this morning that as Jesus is encouraging this church about his truth and his holiness and his authority, we're reminded that this church's strength lies not in its size, nor in its attendance, and not in its resources, but this church's power is found in its great God. I mean, we live in the day of the megachurch, large, towering churches dominate the landscape. And for those of us who worship and serve in smaller congregations can at times be intimidated and even discouraged by those who go to the larger, biggest church in town. And I need to remind you this morning that we've got to take our eyes off of our size and off of our budget and off of the comparison chart. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus who holds the keys to heaven. And the success of this church is not based on our size, but it's based on our faith in a big God. What matters is not how big or how small the church is. What matters is not how much or how little money we have. What matters is that we have faith in God. What matters is, is that we understand that Jesus holds the keys. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather have a little bitty church with a great faith and a great God than to have a great big church with a little bitty faith and a little bitty God. And so we want to be that church like Philadelphia that has great faith and a great God who can accomplish great things. And little churches who have a great faith accomplish great things when God is in it. Successful ministry depends on trusting in him alone. And what he opens and what he shuts will direct the ways that we go and the ways that we function and serve God. We trust him to open those doors of blessings when he wants to. Bigger is not always better. So I hope that you're content this morning in the size of your church. 
Let's move on to our second heading this morning and look at some of the strengths, if we can, of this church of Philadelphia. Jesus, often throughout addressing these churches, moves from explaining some characteristics about himself to then explaining and commending even and encouraging some of the good things that he sees going on in the various churches. In Smyrna and Philadelphia, that's church two, now we're on church six, are the only two churches that don't have any noticeable sin that Jesus is confronting. He's just praising them for their strengths and encouraging them in their place and position to represent him in the world. And so here, Jesus says in verse 8, I know your works. So your next blank there, we're talking about the strengths of Philadelphia. They have good works. Jesus had a firsthand, intimate knowledge of this church. And Jesus knows what's going on in every elder meeting of this church. He knows the budget of this church. And he knows every ministry of this church. And he knows that this church was filled with good works. Another strength that he mentions here, and we've been talking about it already a little bit, but this church has some open doors. It has some open doors. I know your works, verse 8 says, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And so Jesus put before this church of Philadelphia an open door. Now again, throughout scripture and throughout particularly the New Testament, the phrase open door does not refer to decision-making, but it refers to discipleship-making. So think about that with me just for a moment. Typically, we take that concept of open door, and we might say, well, God's opened the door for me here, and God's opened the door for me here, and he's opened the door for me here. And I would say to you, and yes, he has, providentially, that's what God does. But in Scripture, Usually when you see that phrase, open door, it's referring to the gospel being preached, not necessarily for you to make a decision. In fact, turn with me. Let's look at a couple of these together. You see it listed there by that point. But look at 1 Corinthians. I just want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. Again, we're talking about how the phrase open door is used in Scripture so that you can maybe think about using it a little bit more correctly. But here's what 1 Corinthians 16, 8 through 9 says. Paul writes to the church of Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 8, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. If you took the time to look at the whole of chapter 16 and understand the flow there, he's just saying, basically, I have a good work I can do in continuing to preach the gospel because God has opened wide a door for effective ministry. So that I may be more effective in preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Look down at 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 2 in verse 12, again, Paul writing this second letter to the church of Corinth says in 2.12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord. So another reference talking about preaching the gospel, how God had opened a door for him in the Lord. It's not referring to decision-making on a daily basis. In in scripture, it's referring to opening a door for the work of the ministry and for the proclaiming of the gospel. Look at Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Continually, continue steadfastly in prayer. So he's writing to the church of Colossae, challenging them at the end. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 
At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door, may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on a, of account of which I am in prison. So again, open doors in the Bible doesn't refer so much to decision making, but to discipleship making. The only reason I'm saying that is I'm not saying it's wrong for you to say, well, God opened a door here. He opened a door there. But you can't really claim those verses as a cross-reference to the point that you're saying, because these verses are referring to gospel ministry. And so we understand when God's opening a door, when we're praying for God to open doors, and if you want to be more tied to the scripture in that, I think maybe you should be thinking through how your prayer could be, God, would you open a door for us to do this or that so that your name might be proclaimed so that we might be a better witness for you. So whether I go to the left or to the right, my main goal in whatever decision I make is to be a witness for Christ and do the work of the ministry because those are the decisions I'm making. They're based on the gospel. They're based on me being an ambassador for Christ. They're not just namby-damby decisions that I'm making on a horizontal level. I'm praying to God that he would open up the right door so that when I walk through that door, I'm preaching and sharing the gospel with others. Do you see that there in the text? That's what he's talking about here in Philadelphia. That's what he's talking about in the New Testament. So he's saying that, commending this church of Philadelphia, that there's open doors here for this church to come into a deeper relationship with Christ and better represent him in their part of the world. Let me give you a third strength for the church of Philadelphia here. He says they have little power, little power. He says, I know that you have but little power. Now, I want you to know that this comment about Philadelphia having a little power is not a rebuke, and he's not being condescending. It's merely a statement of fact. They were a smaller church in a smaller city with a smaller scope of ministry. But Christ was going before them and placing open doors of significant ministry in their path. My friends, one conversation with one person about one way to heaven is significant. You don't have to have some huge monstrosity of a ministry to make a difference for God. You don't have to be a preacher on the radio. You don't have to be a musician with all your albums, right? You don't have to be some well-known Christian author. You don't have to have a talk show or a podcast. One conversation with one person about the one way to heaven makes you a significant part of God's church. That's what we need to be focused on. And this church doesn't have this ministry or that ministry, you might think at times. No, let me tell you something. You are the ministry. Every person in this church is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to all be busy doing what God's called us to do in his power for his glory to make a difference. Placerita can change Los Angeles. Placerita can change the state of California. Placerita Bible Church can have an impact on this nation and on this world when we hold high the name of Jesus. That's what it's about. Each one of us holding him high every day, wherever you are. Are you with me? All right, let's get it, let's get it up there. All right, so the next strength that we're going to mention here, D, they kept Christ's word. They kept Christ's word. We see it there again in verse 8. You have but little power. Again, a statement of fact, not condemning them, but just acknowledging them. And yet you have kept my word. These believers in Philadelphia were marked by obedience. They were fiercely committed to keeping God's word. They preached it. They taught it. They believed it. They obeyed it. They lived it. They shared it. 
Paul said this in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And we need more churches like this today, churches that would not look to the latest gimmicks or gurus to grow a church, but rather we look to the word of God. We don't necessarily need more popular programs, popular music, popular singers, or popular speakers to grow the church. We need to be keeping God's word, to treasure it in our hearts, to obey it in our lives, Just keep the word, and any church will be led through open doors of God's riches. The last strength that's mentioned here is that they are loyal followers. At the very end of verse 8, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. We see here that these Philadelphians are faithful followers. And so Jesus says here, they have not denied his name. They were loyal to Christ. They were unashamed of the gospel. Maybe there were some in Philadelphia who denied Christ, but not these sincere believers of this church, the true church in Philadelphia, could not recant the name of Christ. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so this little band of believers would not buckle under worldly pressure. They remained true to the Lord. And wherever they went in town, whether it be to the marketplace or to the workplace, in the name of Jesus, they were always exalting Christ with their lips and with their boldness in their, in their hearts and their conviction in their gut, they witness for Christ at every opportunity. And so no wonder doors of opportunity were opening for their church. No wonder Christ commended them in this letter. If God is with us, then nothing can stop us. And Jesus says, I have put before you an open door in which no one will shut. If God opened it. Only God can close it. Satan can't close it. Demons can't close it. Imposing circumstances can't close it. A hostile government can't close it. An unbelieving world can't close it. No one can close it. God opened it, and only God can shut it because he's sovereign. He has all authority, and we're here to follow him. And so let's pray that God would give us the eyes of faith, the courage of a lion, and the conviction of a martyr, that we might be like this church in Philadelphia. Now that we've seen a little bit of the strengths of this church, let's look now at the sin or suffering. I told you already there's no sin for this church and neither the one in Smyrna, but they do face great suffering. And so your next blank says, a promise to crush their enemy. Verse 9, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, But lie, behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What's he talking about? Well, as as was the case of, of Smyrna, where Christ also referred to the synagogue of Satan, he picks up that theme again here. In the synagogue of Satan, as we discuss, referred to the unbelieving Jews who had rejected Christ And therefore, they had rejected God. And so their synagogues or houses of worship were not exalting the true God of the Bible, but they were exalting Satan 
for they had rejected God's son. And when you reject God's son, you reject God. And at that point, that house of worship is no longer worshiping the true God of the Bible, but they're worshiping their own way. And Christ called it a synagogue of Satan. And so we have to understand the true believers in Philadelphia are now facing persecution from these servants of Satan. They claim to be Jews, but they were not Jews spiritually. You see, in the New Testament, it doesn't count to be a Jew ethnically. You have to be a Jew spiritually. And what I mean by that is what Paul writes in Romans 2, 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but is from God. So he's saying, hey, look, if you want the the affirmation of God, it's not about what ethnic line you're in. It's about what spiritual line are you in. And if you're in a spiritual line of having your heart circumcised, by being convicted of your sin and by repentance and faith, you are a born again believer. Then in Romans chapter two, verse 29, he says, then you're a spiritual Jew. In other words, you're a true child of God. And Jesus, Jesus just said it the way that it is. He, he is confronting those in Philadelphia, referring to those who said that they were followers of God, and yet they were actually followers of Satan. And Jesus, when he addresses this kind of thing, he, he holds no punches back. He, he reveals all deception because he is truth. And oh, how we need this kind of truth spoken and preached in our pulpits today. Instead of trying to be an ecumenical church that would somehow accept all faiths and all people, even those who don't see Christ as the risen Christ, We need to be a kind of church that would not be flirting with that kind of disaster. And so Philadelphia was strong. And what's happening in the world today, there are many who are not strong. And the reason they're not strong is they're not strong on Christ. And they're not strong on Christ alone as the only means to salvation. And anyone who doesn't acknowledge the truth about Jesus is not of God. And there are churches today who teach that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is not enough for you to get to heaven. You also have to obey seven different sacraments in order to earn your way to heaven. There are churches today who talk about the doctrine of substitutionary atonement as if it were a peripheral issue of Christianity. There are still others today who blur the clear teaching of justification and who believe it to be a corporate process, a community event, instead of an individual event. I'm talking about different hot topics going on in the world of theology. And what I'm getting at is that you cannot play around with the gospel. There is no new gospel. And if anyone redefines the gospel in a personal way, that makes sense to them, then they are deceived by the devil. And I'm talking about the people that you try to witness to who after interacting a little bit about a conversation of faith, they say, well, I kind of have my own way to heaven. Well, I kind of believe, I believe in God, but I kind of have a God of my own making. Sometimes they don't quite say it that clear, but that's pretty much what they're saying. And so we have to be able to quickly discern all faith is not faith. All who believe in God don't believe in God. All who say they love Jesus don't love Jesus. And you have to be able to cut through the fluff 
and to be able to expose what needs to be exposed because that's what true love does. That's what the truth does. That's what we're called to do. We're to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands to proclaim God's truth. There is no new gospel, and anybody who believes that would be attending, like this church, the people from this area, a synagogue of Satan. That's what he's referring to. These people are in churches, but they're serving the devil. They may appear to be a part of a visible church, but inwardly, they were not a part of the true church. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So amazingly, Christ promised that some of the very Jews who were persecuting the Christians in Philadelphia would eventually bow at their feet. And Jesus was going to vindicate these Christians in that way. He was going to make sure that those unbelieving Jews were aware that the true love of God transcends through culture and ethnicity. The love of God from God himself knows no bounds. The love of God permeates the globe and is as glorious as it could possibly be. And so he's reminding them that some of those who are from the church uh, of the, the synagogue of Satan, Jesus is going to make them bow down at their feet, the feet of the believers at Philadelphia, and they will learn that I have loved you. Certainly, this would remind us of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God is highly exalted. Uh, therefore, God has highly exalted him. God has exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so he's just saying to them, hey, one day these people are persecuting you. They're going to bow down. And you can know that same truth today, that one day your boss, your family member, your neighbor while we're praying for them to come to Christ, and we're desperately praying that God would open their eyes to the truth, we know that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And so Jesus is promising to crush the enemies of these true Christians in Philadelphia. And a second promise he gives there in verse 10, a promise to keep them from the hour of testing. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world and try those who dwell on the earth. So he's saying that because these Philadelphian believers had kept God's word and because they had persevered. In other words, they just, they weren't people who just had it in lip profession only. They profess Christ with their lips. They lived for Christ with their lives. They persevered that God would keep them from the hour of trial. Now, we don't have time this morning to look at all the various views of eschatology, which, are, which is the study of end times, but it seems clear from this passage that this was not just a local test for the church of Philadelphia, because he talks about how they would be protected from the trial that would come on the whole world. So the only uh, reference I believe that could be referring to would be to the great tribulation. I believe there's a time of testing coming 
that would impact the whole world, and it would happen for seven years. I believe that based on Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 to 27, what's called Daniel's 70th week. It's referred to in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, as Jacob's trouble. In fact, Revelation chapter 6, all the way to chapter 19, uh, is teaching from Christ on what will happen at the tribulation. And he talks about all the judgments that will happen and what a horrific time it will be. The tribulation is a test. There will be some who will pass the test, I believe, and will become believers even in the tribulation. I get that from, look quickly at Revelation 6, verse 9 through 11. So there's a test coming This church right now, as we see it, will be spared from that test. There will be some who will go into the tribulation as unbelievers, but I believe they'll be saved in the tribulation based on this reference of Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice. So he's seeing martyrs who've already been dead, but been resurrected because they're in Christ. They're crying out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these martyrs who had died, been raised in Christ, are asking how much longer does this tribulation have to go on? Verse 11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer And now he gives the answer, how long must they wait until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete? So apparently, the number of brothers in the faith and faithful servants in the faith was not yet complete because there were still some being saved during the tribulation. So until the number of the fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so he's saying, not every Christian is spared for the test because some become Christians during the tribulation. But this particular church of Philadelphia will be spared from this test. They, they, they will not go through this. They will not face the same type of persecution that those who live in the, in the, in the uh, tribulation will face. And so that's a commendation that he's saying to them. I mean, think about it. Just the fact that Jesus is commending them and he's applauding them and he's affirming them. He's not saying, and now you've got to go through the great tribulation. He's saying, no, no, I'm commending you, I'm applauding you, and because you've done what you've done and you've kept your, your, my word, then when that, whenever that big trial comes across the whole world, you're going to be spared from it. I will keep you from it, he says. He didn't say, I'll put you in it. He says, I'll keep you from it. So this is an argument about pre-tribulational rapture, that somehow Jesus will spare the, those in the church of Philadelphia, those who hold to Christ, those in any church from entering into the tribulation. Let me move on to our fourth heading this morning is the solution. What's the the solution? Verse 11, he's commending them again to continue to hold fast. Your next blank, hold fast to your faith. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And this idea of Jesus coming quickly always reminds us of the imminent return of Christ. He could come back at any moment, at any hour, on any given day. And so his command here is to hold fast. It means to adhere strongly to. It's like super glue your faith to Jesus because he's coming back soon. It's like when you get hooked up in a zip line, you put that thing on, you zip it up, you strap it in, you double strap it. You're like, I'm not coming out of this thing. 
And he's saying you need to be so encapsulated in the faith that God's given you that nothing could take you out. No trial could ever take you out. And so Jesus said the same thing to the church of Thyatira, Revelation 2.25, hold fast to what you have until I come. And if you hold fast to the faith that you have, no one will take away your crown. That's your next blank. Don't let go of your crown. So he's saying here again in verse 11, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The word crown here seems to be referring to the crown of life. The church of Smyrna, Jesus said this to them in Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. So that's a reference to a shorter 10-day period. But this is what I want you to see. The last part of verse uh, 10 in Revelation 2 says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So when he's saying this crown here in chapter 3, verse 11, I think it's talking about the same crown that he's talking about in 2.10, which is simply a reference to eternal life. The same crown is referred to in James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. In other places, it's called the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4.8, or a crown of glory, 1 Peter 5.4. And so the idea here is eternal life, eternal security, perseverance of the saints. Salvation is by faith. Faith produces perseverance in good works. And because God's work in you, both in saving you and in doing works through you, culminate into receiving eternal life. It's what Jesus says in John 10, 27, 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Once you belong to God, you always belong to God. Once you have a child, that child is always your child. You don't lose your children. We understand children can die, but I'm just saying the relationship would never falter of like, oh, I've somehow divorced my children. No, your child is your child. When you're adopted into the family of God, no one snatches you out of God's hand. You're adopted into his family. He is your father. And so he's giving us great comfort here and reminding them that's God's business but you need to do your part, again, not in salvation, but in sanctification, but your faithful sanctification is evidence of your salvation. So there's always tying those two things together. It's never just like grace only, live however you want. The Bible just never says that. It's grace only for salvation, and you need to persevere. It's grace only, but I want you to persevere throughout your whole life. And those who persevere are showing they really have received the grace only that can save them. They always go together. Your salvation and sanctification never divorce those two in your theology or you'll have a false gospel. All right, let me move on. The summation here, number five, in verses 12 and 13, the first blank is the faithful overcomer. We see this time and time again throughout these seven churches. There's a little twist here in a minute, but in, in this first part of verse 12, he says, the one who conquers... So we're calling this the faithful overcomer. Every Christian, I've been telling you, is an overcomer. That's just got to be encouraging to us because sometimes as Christians, I feel like a failure. But as a Christian in Christ, I am an overcomer. 
and I will conquer. And it's Christ in me, and it's the reminder of Romans 8, 31 and following, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You want to know why you're an overcomer? Go back again and again and again to Romans 8, 31 to 38 and be reminded of who you are. You are an overcomer. And not only that, your next blank says that we've been given that forever promise. In chapter uh, 3, verse 12, it says here, the one, uh, I'm, let's see, verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So here's this promise is going to be broken down into three different parts, okay? So we see it there in the outline. So he's given us a forever promise. First, he's reminding you that you are a pillar in God's temple. He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar is an ancient symbol of security and strength. When all else has fallen, so often the pillar of a building stands tall and erect. There was a time where my wife and I had a chance to do a mission trip to Tirana, Albania, On the way back, we stopped in Athens, Greece. There was a layover for a night or two. And so we toured the Acropolis and saw the Parthenon and we saw the Temple of Zeus. And guess what? The whole temple's not standing. But guess what is standing? Pillars. There's certain pillars in the Temple of Zeus in the temple of Athena there on the Acropolis that have been standing for over 5,000 years. Some pillars still stand. And what God is saying to this church, remember how this church in Philadelphia went through the earthquake and everything got fall, fell over? So they started building their little tabernacles outside because they didn't want to come back in the city. He said, hey, you guys are going to be a pillar in the temple of God. And so this would have been a specific encouragement to them to say, hey, though you've seen pillars fall and that earthquake was hard and the aftershocks were difficult, you're a pillar of God. You're a pillar in the temple of God. He's encouraging them and he's reminding them that they have that kind of faith. It's even mentioned in Galatians chapter two, verse nine to Peter, James, and John. They seem to be pillars who perceived the grace that was given to them and had given their right hand of fellowship to Barnabas. But they referred to Peter, James, and John as pillars of the faith. That's what you are. This idea of being a pillar again communicates strength and permanence. Not only that, but number two, There's a permanence in God's temple. I told you a pillar represents strength and permanence. When he says there in verse 12, a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. That's where I'm getting the idea of permanence. You're strong, 
You're, you're in the temple of God. You're a living stone. You're a pillar, and you will never go out of the temple. And some Ancient communities, a distinguished citizen would have a pillar erected in his honor. He might be a noted senator, a noble dignitary, or a famous philosopher, or a respected educator, and his name would often be inscribed upon a massive pillar to document his contribution for future generations to see. And this would have been particularly, again, encouraging to those in Philadelphia to know that they would be able to now dwell in the house of God forever. That's, that's what David prays for in Psalm 24, uh, tw- sorry, 27, verse 4. One thing I ask for, and this may I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So we're saying that for every believer, there's strength, there's permanence. And then we see there, number three, he then gives them three new names. And then this kind of opens up three more um, little headings under three new names. First, you have the name of my God, the name of my God, because he says, I will write on him three things he's going to write on those pillars that represent strength and permanence. He's going to write three things on them. Number one, he's going to write the name of my God. And that day, writing your name on something was a mark of ownership. A master would even mark his servants with his own name or his own symbol. Like a brand on cattle, the master's name meant that the servant belonged to the master. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to put the name of my God on you. 1 Corinthians 6.19 reminds us that you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You don't belong to yourself if you're in Christ. You died to yourself. You belong to him, and he's put his name on you. Not only that, but as a child of God, not only do you receive the name of God, meaning that you belong to him, ownership, but you also receive the name of the new Jerusalem. That's your next blank. You receive the name of the new Jerusalem. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. So those who belong to God will be citizens of heaven. And at the end of the book, this book of Revelation, God describes the new heavens and the new earth as the new Jerusalem. Look at it with me if you want. Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And you can keep on reading there, but basically you have the new city, the new Jerusalem, is also something that he's writing or giving to you the new name of God, ownership, the new city, and inheritance forever. And then number three, the new name of Christ, the new name of Christ, because he talks about the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And remember, Jesus is speaking here. John's recording it. He says, and my own new name. So even better than having the name of Jerusalem is having the new name of Christ The new name of Christ here uh, is the idea of the gospel, the fact that now you're new in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So these are the promises, incredible promises, given to the church of Philadelphia. 
which I believe in concept and in principle are available to you today as those who love Christ and as those who follow Christ. And so then he wraps it up with this final counsel, verse 13, this final counsel. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's saying here that believers must heed the truth of this passage, that this was true for the church of Philadelphia, and it's true for our church today that we need to take these same challenges seriously. In other words, are you holding fast to your crown? Are you an overcomer by the grace of God? Are you living like an overcomer? Are you standing tall as a pillar in this church? Have you received a new name? Will you experience the new Jerusalem? Have you received the new name of Christ giving you a new character? Our faithfulness in small matters opens up greater ministry opportunities in the future. And no church is limited by its size. We are only limited by our faith. Remember the question, would you rather be in a big church with a little faith or in a little church with a big faith? And it's the degree of our faithfulness that determines the extent of our ministry. And God often does his greatest work through his weakest and most obscure instruments. If we have faith in a big God, even the simplest of tasks become important. And sometimes it just boils down to our perspective in our service to God. A construction foreman once approached one of his workers who was busy laying bricks at the foundation of a new church. The foreman asked this first laborer, what are you doing? The laborer said, can't you see I'm laying bricks? The foreman then proceeded to another bricklayer and he asked him, what are you doing? The second laborer said, I'm building a church building. The foreman walked over to the third bricklayer and he asked the same question, what are you doing? But this man had a totally different perspective. He answered, I'm building a house of worship for the glory of God. Now, all three were doing the same work, but only one had the right perspective. Only one showed a true heart of faith. Only one saw the big picture. He lived to serve a great God. Well, how about you? This morning, as you think about your faithfulness to Christ, are you just laying bricks? When you go to work tomorrow, one of my kids already told me, do I have to go back to school tomorrow? It's been so good having the week off. Please don't make us go back to school. Well, guess what? You got to go back to work tomorrow. And my question to you is, are you just laying bricks? Or are you seeing one conversation with one person about the one way to heaven being what you live for? And I want to encourage us to be faithful and our devotion to Christ, and be faithful in your display of your love for Christ and how you live this week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity just to, just to be reminded of the fact that it doesn't matter if we're big or small as a church. What matters is that we have a big God, and we want to be faithful in our devotion to you, 
And we want to seek you with all of our hearts, God. And we just thank you for some of these reminders, even at the end of, of this message to the, the, the letter to Philippi about how they're a pillar of the faith and how they have a new name, the new name of God and a, a new name of the new city of Jerusalem and the new name of Christ written on them. It's just a reminder, God, that in a world that's finicky and in a world that oftentimes is so fake, we serve the true and living God. We serve the Holy One. And I pray if there would be anybody here today that has never repented of their sins and needs to come into a, a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would encourage them to talk to somebody today before they leave and that you would just enable us as Christians, God, to be always on the lookout for what it means to be a true Christian, that we would never waffle or waver on the doctrine of salvation being through Christ and through Christ alone. God, we just thank you for the encouragement again, that we've received this morning from your words to the church of Philippi. Bless us as we sing this last song, as we enjoy the rest of the Lord's day. May you be glorified in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.